and B, we may be wrong. So we've got we to know that, that that's a reality. So, so now you know that, that natural interpretation happens. You begin to think, well, that's what that means. B, I may be right, I may be wrong, and now you're in this dilemma. How do I know whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong? And that's really what we're talking about. There, there are rules to the game. Not Baptist rules or Brian rules or anything else. These are just basic, uh, basic rules of biblical interpretation. Only put the weight a little bit, a little bit stronger on it this morning. Not only do we naturally interpret, not only is it possible to be right and wrong, whatever our interpretation is. Um, so you have to learn how to make sure you can do that. And that's what I want to encourage you that you can. This, this is not something that you need seminary to do. This is something every believer has the ability to do and every believer must do. So you can be right, you can be wrong, but then when you share that interpretation with somebody else, then you're accountable. Not only for what, what you what you uh, interpret in your own heart and practice in your own heart, um, in your own life, but, but then you're accountable for what you share with so, whenever I first came to seminary, um, and this was back in 2000, I had no, I mean, I was told to go into seminary. I actually enrolled in Bible college because I didn't know anything about the Bible, but whenever I enrolled, they said, oh, well, you already have a bachelor's degree, you just need to start seminary. I was like, well, okay, fine, but I don't know anything about the Bible, so I'd like to kind of start way back here, and, and um they, they said, no, you know, this, this is where you started. I remember going into my uh, New Testament survey class. Um, and there was a professor there um, whose name was Dr. Jim Pearson. You may know Dr. Jim Pearson? Uh, he's in our church now. I have a great privilege of being my professor's pastor, which is a humbling thing. Um, and he had us open the Bible how you open class. You have to open the Bible to Matthew 16. And does anybody know what is in Matthew 16? What the story is in Matthew 16? They're in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus purposely takes the disciples to Caesarea Philippi, um, a very long journey from Galilee. It's a Gentile area. And there's a lot of pagan worship going on there because it's one of the tributaries of the of the the Sea of Galilee. So the the runoff from Mount Hermon goes into an underground river, and and at the base of this of this little hill, water comes up out of the ground, and it I mean, it's beautiful. It's, it, it flows, and we understand. I mean, it's a it's an underground river, it's an underground stream. But put yourself several thousand years ago, not even time of Jesus. This is even thousands of years before Jesus. In an arid climate where you're dependent upon the rain, and all of a sudden you have fresh water coming up out of the ground, and there's this big cave, this mouth, if you will, at the base of the mountain where the water's coming out, and you don't know God, and you're superstitious, you would think that that was probably pretty supernatural, and the gods did this. And so there's all kinds of pagan temples around there. They worship the god Pan, and and so this is a hotbed for for false religions. So Jesus takes his disciples there, this town, and he asks them the question, who do men say that I am? Who do all these people say that, that I am? 
story, um, they give a number of answers. And then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And then Peter answers for the group, and what's he say? Jesus Christ, Son, Lord, and God. And this is in class. And Dr. Pearson says, and who revealed that unto him? Well, the next passage tells you. My father, your, your father, uh, revealed that to you. It wasn't that you're smarter than anything else. He says, that's great. So Peter gets it right. Um, and the father opens his mind and helps him understand. And then he says, look at a few verses later. And Jesus starts talking about what the Christ will do. Christ will go to Jerusalem and he'll die and he'll be delivered over to sinners. And what does Peter do? Do you remember? <laughs> Peter rebukes him. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get away from me, Satan. And he says, now, here's what I want you to notice, fellas. Here is Peter, the great apostle, who walked with Jesus day and night and who watched him do miracles. And one minute, God the Father is illuminating his mind, and Peter is understanding clearly and correctly. And the next minute, Jesus says he's under the influence of Satan. And what I want you to recognize is Peter couldn't tell the difference. <laughs> Jesus had to tell him which was happening when. And he said, and if you think that you're going to be any better than Peter, you're, you're kidding yourself. <laughs> So when you stand before people and say, thus saith the Lord, God had better say it. Because you're going to stand in judgment for every word that proceeds from your mouth. And then he had us turn to Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. You can know it only God. You know, God tries to reign and says, thus saith the heart. And I'm telling you, I was petrified. I, I, I'm not exaggerating. I did not want to preach. For three months, I mean, I had little opportunities. I'm thinking, okay, I get it. Like, I'm going to be held accountable for what I say, and I have no idea how to tell whether God says or whether it's my own human, you know, human wisdom, which James says is is demonic. Um, and what helped me was was I figured out you can actually learn. You can learn how to figure out that that's exactly what that passage says. Now, I understand they're hard texts. Peter says that. They're hard texts. Paul writes things that are difficult. Um, so I can't, under, I can't explain the Trinity to you any better than, than you can probably understand it. I don't, know how to, I don't know how to reconcile certain things in the Bible, certain things that are, are irreconcilable in our human minds. How do you get your brain around eternality? There's never a beginning, there's never an end. So I understand all of that. But don't use that as an excuse not to work hard to learn the basics to understand what exactly this passage is saying. Because you automatically begin to do that. You automatically begin to interpret. And whatever you believe it says, that's how you practice your life. Right? What you do is based on what you believe. Your belief system. Way that you work, the way that you whether you go to church, the way that you understand the gospel, whether you're obedient, it's all based on what you believe, what you do. Jesus says you'll know them by their fruit, their life. First John, we say we have fellowship with Him, 
parable, and yet we walk, we live our lives in darkness. We're incongruent. We lie and, and, and do not the truth. So our practice, the way we live, is tied to what we what we believe, and what we believe is based on an authority. And we all agree the authority is the Bible, right? I mean, we all agree authority is the Bible. So how do you get from the authority being the Bible to what you're supposed to believe and then what you're supposed to do? You have to apply yourself to to these to these rules. And so last time we talked about an introduction to to Bible interpretation or introduction to you know, to, to hermeneutics. Today we're we're gonna we're gonna talk about we're gonna end up talking about um, you know communicating that, developing clear, compelling compelling sermons. Um, but before we get there, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go a little bit deeper on on interpretation because I think it's I think it's very important. And the reason I had you turn to Nehemiah eight is because it is an Old Testament example of the same need that we have that we have today. It's an Old Testament example of exposition. Interpretation. Now, the passage we read last time was Ezra. And what did Ezra do? What pattern did we get from Ezra? He read the words before the people. Ezra, in Nehemiah, he did. In our passage last week, there were three points. God allows their enemies in 
chastisement to come in and overtake them, both, both the ten tribes of Israel, the two tribes of Judah, and that's already happened. And then God allows them to go back into the land, and so they rebuild the temple after, you know, in, in the, the story you probably remember from Sunday school, Daniel. Right? So, um, and then Nehemiah is able to rebuild the, rebuild the wall. So Nehemiah 8 is after the wall is rebuilt. So Ezra the priest, Nehemiah the, the, the leader, if you will, Ezra rebuilds the temple, Nehemiah rebuilds the, um, the wall. So this is about 445 B.C. The wall is done, they're back in the land, and they're God's people, so they open God's book. And this is after the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. So all the people gathered as one man in the square. So all the children of Israel are there, the ones that are that are back in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra to bring the scroll of the law of Moses. God's people and God's voice, the shepherd's voice and the sheep, the the Word of God and the people of God. They want to hear God. And so Ezra the priest brought the law, verse 2, before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it in, uh, before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until, until midday. So several hours of of reading. So no complaining about my 50-minute sermon. <laughs> Ezra reads, they want to hear the word, and they read it for several hours, midday, early morning until midday, in the presence of men, women, those who could understand. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose. Beside him stood a bunch of wonderful Hebrew brothers. <laughs> Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was standing above all the people, and he opened it, and all the people stood up in reverence to the word. Then Ezra prayed, Bless the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, saying, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verse 7, which is the beginning, some other Hebrew brothers. They explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, Translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning, these men, their love for you. The evidence of that is that they got out of bed this morning to be here. It's a particular grace that you've given us to gather together and to learn. And I thank you for the privilege, Lord, to be here. Um, 
Father, I pray that you would use this morning uh, to teach us, to help us to learn, to better understand your word so we can better know you, so we can love you more and obey you, obey you better. Help me to think clearly and to communicate well. Um, I am weak and frail. Help these brothers to learn. You have an agenda today, and we want to follow it. So Nehemiah, Ezra says, study the law to practice and then to teach. So you study it first, you understand the meaning, then you practice it, you, you apply it to your own life, and then you teach it. Well, Nehemiah here gives an example of what that teaching looks like in the three parts to it, too. What was the first thing that Nehemiah did? The people asked for the book of the law. What's the first thing that Nehemiah did? He read the text, right? And I don't just mean read it from the sense of, of reading the, the words, even though it is a, I think it's a travesty. If you go into most liberal churches today, they still read the Bible out loud. If you go into just apostate churches, the best thing that you'll probably hear is the liturgical readings. They're still reading from confessions and from the Bible. What you hear them say is a bunch of garbage, but they'll read the Bible. Here's the travesty. There's more Bible being read in a lot of heretical liberal churches than in some good fundamental Baptist churches. Mm. Because we read just a really small portion, about three words, and then we launch for you know our sermons or whatever we want to communicate. Even if what we're saying is true. Ezra read the text. Why do we read the text? Because it doesn't make a hill of beans, what I think. It matters what God said, and before I can figure out what God said, i got to hear what God said. All through the Bible, it, God's a verbal God. How does the Bible begin? In the beginning, God speaks, right? He speaks the world into creation. What's the Shema say? When God gathers his people Israel in the land in order to hear from him, what's he say? Hear, O Israel. And that doesn't just mean let it fall on your ears. It means hear and obey. It's the idea. I want to hear what God says so I can do what God says, which is what James is echoing when he says don't just be a hearer, but be a doer. Hear, O Israel. And what's how has God ordained that He's going to save people today. What's faith come by? Preach the gospel. Share the gospel. You've seen the words, I think it's um, St. It's Francis of Sissy, the little thing that says, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a ridiculous statement. It doesn't even make sense. Mm -hmm. You can't preach the gospel without words. Preach the gospel, use words if necessary. Now, I think the sentiment is... Probably make sure that your life backs up what you say, and that's a good thing. Okay, but you can't just live and never say. Uh, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Preach the word. That's a, 
That's a, a universal, timeless command. God is a verbal God, and God speaks not in voices, not in still small things, not in promptings, not in this. God speaks through his word. So, to hear God's word read is to hear God speak. That puts a little bit different emphasis on scripture reading on Sunday morning, but or on your Bible reading. When you read the word, your creator is speaking to you. So we got a problem at times. Because when I read, I hear my creator speaking, but sometimes I can't exactly make out what he's saying because I'm thousands of years removed. Or there's culture there, there's context there, because your creator spoke through people in a specific time, grammar and language and context and otherwise. So now he's given you and I the privilege. This is the privilege. Don't think this is anything bad. It's a privilege. He's given you the privilege to dig and figure out exactly what what he's what he's saying. So Ezra read the text. Bring the book. One here from from God. So verse two, Ezra the priest brought the law before the Lord <laughs> men and women so they could listen with with understanding. He read it. And you see verse four, Ezra stood, he stands above the people, and um, that they made this specific purpose. Look at verse five. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all of the people, for which he was standing above the people, he opened it. People stood up. They understand this is not like a book with pages. This is like a scroll at this point in time. Ezra prays, verse 6, He blessed the Lord, the great God, all the people. And the answer said, uh, the, all the people answered, Amen, Amen. It's the word of God. Lifting up their hands, they bowed low and worshipped. I'm under the word of God. I mean, this is all about how you approach the Bible. If you, don't, if you show up on Sunday morning and just roll in, they, like I said, you know, there are people that are sitting there with their arms crossed looking at the preacher saying, go ahead and bless me, I dare you. So that's not the way that you roll in. <laughs> Sunday morning starts on Saturday night, right? Mm. I understand that you're busy and those kind of things. So I'm not trying to give you an extra biblical requirement. What I am saying to you is when you come to church, you need to realize God's going to speak and you have to prepare your heart for it. So when you're listening to God, it's not the time to be looking up, you know, how Tiger is doing on the Amen. on the Masters. Amen. It's, it's a time to, to focus, um, and they're they're bowing low. They understand what's happening. This is the voice of our, of God. This is the voice of our God. We bow low. We worship, and then after the book is read, verse eight. They read from the book, from the law, and then they explained, translated, to give the sense so that then they could apply, so that they <clears throat> could put it into practice. So there's three parts. Practice, study, teach. Now you have read the text, explain the text, apply the text. These are Jews who have been in captivity. They, their Hebrew is rusty. Um, their context is rusty. They're reading about things that happened. You know, this is 445. They're reading about things that happened a thousand years ago or 500 years ago. They're in the 1700s. 
same boat that you and I are in when we come to church on Sunday and we read about what happened in the life of Jesus and the disciples 2,000 years ago. And they need someone to interpret it, to, to help them explain, to expose what exactly was going on in Egypt. And so the source is the text, they read that, and then... The teacher explains, and then they're there to, to be able to apply. So he's not even only saying, this is what God says. He's saying, so what? Here's the implications of that. Is what you do with it now, people, as you have returned to, to Jerusalem. So look at the, the title here, the, the opening paragraph. The goal of homiletics, the goal of is to find the best way to present the, the context of a passage to an audience so that they can benefit from the truth the same way that you have. You have being the one who studied it, the one who's practiced it, and now you're teaching it. So now you have it, you understand it, you understand what it says, you desire to put it into practice in your life. And now your goal to share it with somebody else is to figure out the best way to present the content of the passage to an audience so that they can benefit from the truth the same way that you have. Because now you've understood. It isn't enough for a teacher to know what a passage means. You should know what a passage means. If you don't know what a passage means, then you're not going to be a good teacher of it. You can diagram, outline the structure, get the main point, but it isn't effective unless you can articulate it so that others can clearly understand that's your goal. This step in the process requires careful attention. Even if you're a gifted communicator, winging it does not serve your people well, and I would say it doesn't serve God well. This does not mean that there is somehow special power in homiletics. Power is in the word of God. Amen. But the clarity with which you teach is where the power comes from. I mean, that's the goal. It's clear. If the voice of God is clear through you being able to explain it clearly, then there's the power. However, in homiletics, we're going to do all we can Sunday morning and Sunday night, I go through two phases. Okay? The first phase is understanding what does this mean. That's the study phase. And I start the same way you do. I read the passage. And then I try to figure out what's going on. I, I catch my, my, my natural interpretations. Well, that may be right, that may be not right, so I don't want to start drawing conclusions yet. I want to make sure I hear it all. You remember your, your, when you're a child, your parents start to tell you something, and you, yay, I got it, and then you go, no, 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 I'm not done. <laughs> Stay here until you learn it all. You hear everything I have to say. They used to test us in grade school whether we read the instructions on the exam, not just the exam itself. So read, and then I do all of the, all of the work that's necessary to figure out what does the passage mean? What's it saying? And that's everything from 
what we're talking about and what we're going to talk about. Um, that's the, the discovery word. What does this mean? <coughs> but that's not what I bring into the pulpit. Remember Dr. Luke Kaufman, who is my homiletics professor, said it's this, this period is like all of the film reel that's shot on a movie. Think of the hours and hours and hours of film that's shot that never makes it into the actual movie. And if all you watched was the, you know, the, the 60 hours or 100 hours, I don't know what it is, of, you know, of the movie reel, that would be a pretty boring, boring movie. It's way too much information. And so what a director does, what an editor does, is, is figure out how to take all of that and put it into an hour and 50 minutes or two hours or three hours or, or whatever it is. That's the second stage. So here is the discovery. Everything that this says, and, and that can involve you know the, the languages, that can involve word studies, that can involve block diagramming, where does the text start, where does it end, What's the main point? You're doing all this work and you're figuring out yourself. And then after you figure out what it says, then you're processing, okay, so what? What are the implications of that? Okay, this is what God said, so how does that apply to my life? Thinking about yourself, that's the, I want to put it in the practice part. And then the second half is the sermonizing. Now once I've got what it says and the so what part, now I need to put it into a package need to do the editing so that people can understand. You understand the blessing, the gift that you get as a teacher is that you get the privilege of, of seeing and shooting the 300 hours or 30 hours or whatever it is of the, of the film. I understand when the final product that's wonderful, but your blessing or your labor is you get to, to be that close to God and to see little things and nuggets that nobody else gets to because you have the privilege of doing all of all of that, that work. That's your gift for the labor. That's your sanctification. That's why I say I think it's 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 not necessary to say your devotional life and your sermon prep life or your teaching life are two different things. Because if you're approaching sermon prep or you're approaching teaching for a Sunday school class or or sharing with your your, your family devotions, that that somehow doesn't apply to your life because you're preparing for somebody else got a problem. That, that, that's part of your sanctification. Um, so that part. Now the second part, honestly, I don't enjoy the second part as much as I do the first part. That's the sermonizing. Okay, this is the main idea. How do I say the main idea in a way that people will understand? Clarity is the goal. How do I say it in a way that, that there's the, that's the main thing? I want to be faithful to the text, but I want to be able to say it in a way that, that people understand. So that's that's that top line whenever you, you're sitting there on, on Sunday morning. You know, the, the two tests from the Garden of Gethsemane from, from last week, the two testings. So, okay, I'm going to get my mind around that. And then the points are the hooks that people can you know, hang stuff on. And so those two those two works you're, you're, you're doing. We want to be clear and remove everything that that hinders. So you're reading, you're explaining, and then you're 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 applying. Well, I think that there's actually a lesson that should go between 
the introduction of hermeneutics and develop a clear, compelling sermon. So we've got the introduction of hermeneutics, and now we've got sermonizing, and I think that there ought to be a lesson in here that 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 bridges the two, and that's what I want to show you this morning. We're going to watch a little video before we, before we do that, and then I'll... people who will die without God's word. Left to ourselves, we will perish forever. So expositional preaching is what God has given us to tell us the truth about himself and ourselves, to tell us the gospel. Expositional preaching is critical when it comes to being a faithful pastor, when it comes to being uh, a faithful leader of God's people. Uh, As pastors, we're called to not just preach, but to preach God's word, to preach the gospel. Expositional preaching is making the point of a passage of scripture the point of your message. It's making the point of the biblical text the point of the sermon. It's exposing God's word to God's people. Well, I don't have a mandate to preach what I want to preach. I have a mandate from God to preach his word. And the best way to do that, I think the most faithful way to preach the scriptures is to preach the exposition, to expand what God has already said to his people. Right there in one of his last letters to Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. Uh, In fact, he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is is going to appear, do this. Before you do anything else, Timothy, do this. Preach the word. It helps people to actually understand the Bible for themselves. They can actually get from the text exactly what the text says. And as a result, they learn to read the Bible for themselves. It's deriving... Uh, the meaning of the text, and give it to the people as a banquet, as a, as a great supper on which to feed. Uh, but we live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And as exposition preached, exposition preaching, that helps us give the people every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. At the end of the day, I want my people reliant upon God's word, not upon my cleverness, not upon my personality, not upon um, what they might think are particularly witty or insightful ways that I may communicate, but upon the word itself, and that's what will sustain your soul. I wonder if people that are in uh, England or Europe want to have a West Virginia accent. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. 
in your
expository preaching is not how much of the text you preach. It's about what you do with the text that you preach. The question is not, did you preach the right verse or verses? The question is, did you preach the verses right? So if this is the text, what's it pointing to? The mold. The mold. And this is the sermon, Plato, then you're doing biblical exposition. Following? If this is the sermon, and this is the text, you're doing biblical imposition. You see the difference? The text is the boundary. It's the mold. The text should shape what you're teaching and what you're understanding. You shouldn't come to the to the text with your sermon. This is what I want to teach. And so I'm going to take what I want to teach and I'm going to I'm going to lay it on top of that verse and I'm going to contort and twist that verse, press that verse into my mold. You follow me? That's why you have to start with study, practice, teach. And when you teach, you have to start with reading and then explaining and then applying. That's the order that's, that's, that, that's there. Okay? So what are the characteristics of, uh, of exposition? And, and what did, what did Dever say exposition was? You hear that word a lot. What, what what do you hear when you hear exposition? What comes to your mind? Exposed. Exposed. Well, you got the right. It's exposed. What are you exposing? The meaning of the word. The meaning. Huh? The meaning of the word. Yeah, the meaning of the word. You're exposing God's intended meaning. So how do we figure out what did God mean by that by that passage? I understand there's a lot of work for that, but what 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 are what do you do to try to figure that out? What what's your back to the lesson last time? So there's there's context, um, there's natural interpretation that 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 takes place. So you're exposing what the original author, what did Paul mean? Because he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When he communicated to Timothy, his original hearer, it's not what you think it means today or how it applies today. You have to start, what did it mean? Before you can then say, what does it mean to me? Because if you don't know what it meant, then you can't understand or know what it means to you. Because what it means today is is what it meant then. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. All right. So what are some characteristics from the text to the sermon? So your molds the text, your sermon, your outline, your personal Bible study, whatever it is, is the is the goal. So the subject of the text is the subject of the sermon. Okay, Psalm 23 is not about abortion, right? Do you agree with that? How do we know that? Because it means nothing about abortion. But it is, is abortion bad? Yeah, it's evil. Wait, should I preach about abortion and against the evil? You better believe it. 
But I don't preach that from Psalm 23. Because the Lord is my shepherd. There's a point, right? Point to the 23rd Psalm. And that should become the subject of the of the of the sermon. So the subject of the text is the subject of the of the sermon. The point of the text is the point of the of the sermon. No single passage is telling you everything about every topic. And so you begin with that passage and you stick to that point. That's the reason you preach the whole council of God. Every passage is not an encyclopedia. You narrow it down. Um, to be clear, you're, you're not making a point from the text. You're making the point of the text. So, Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. We're coming up on the resurrection. And so, that's when the angels come and you know they're, they're there and the women go to the, go to the tomb. So, they're angels. point of Matthew 18, 1-10 is not that angels are messengers of God. <laughs> Even though they're there, and there are messengers of, of God. The, the point of Matthew 28, 1-10 is, is the resurrection. And that's the point. So the point of the passage should become, or point of the text should become the point of your, of your sermon. The shape of the text should be the shape of its sermon. Follow the contour of the or the or the landscape. Um, so the point of the text, Matthew two one through twelve, is where Jesus is 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 in crowds and people uh, you know take the roof um, the roof off and they let their friends down through. Um, but the point of that passage is not bring your friends to Jesus, although it's a wonderful <laughs> thing to bring your friends to Jesus. Point of that has a has a completely different completely different context. But now you're into the shape of the text becomes the shape of the sermon. Not every sermon has three points, or three <laughs> points in a poem, as they say. Um, how many points should you have? Well, how many ever mountain peaks are in that sermon? When I stand back and look at this story, there's a beginning of the story and there's an end of the story. And I'm looking at that story as a whole. How many points do I see? I'm following the contours. I'm following exactly what are the main ideas. I mean, you do this all the time whenever you read a newspaper article. What, what's, the, what's the big idea about the newspaper article? Well, editors try to summarize that in the headline, and sometimes they get it right, and sometimes they it's clickbait, right? It's going to say something to try to get you to, you know, to see it. But as you read it, there's there's a flow. So, how many were points in the sermon? Your your study ought to follow the flow of the of the, of the text, and then the mood of the text, the mood of the of the sermon. Um, what are the emotions? Telling a joke when they're preaching about hell. Does that match? It doesn't match. 
Spurgeon said, uh, um, when you preach on heaven, smile, and when you preach on hell, well, your normal face will do. <laughs> your lamentations don't start with a knock-knock joke. If you're preaching on Isaiah 6, there, there should be some gravitas to that. You're singing the murmur of God. You're in Esther 1, which is filled with irony, and comedy may be, may be appropriate. Imagine the original author of that text is sitting on the front row while you preach. This is faithful play. This is body language. This is affirming.
Yeah, it might be just their opinion. Where's the authority? So, I mean, I surely didn't intend to preach the wrong thing or heresy or error. I wanted, I wanted people to obey God. I mean, my motives were, were true. But I'm listening. If I'm listening to somebody and they're not showing me or, or at least giving me some idea that what they're getting is coming from the book in front of me, then where's the authority? The authority, I have no authority other than what God says. No preacher has any authority. You have no authority other than what what God said. Even if you're really winsome and and, a, and an able communicator. So where's the authority? I must I must have to be a preacher to be able to understand my Bible because I can't understand it. But boy, that really sounds good. You know, I can remember coming out of a revival uh, meeting one time where
So one of the things that you're doing when you're watching your, yourself, which I hate to do, everybody hates to do, is you're looking for, you know, for quirks or mannerisms. You know, if the guy, you know, always puts his, his hand in his pocket or he fidgets, you know, or he always goes to the right-hand side, you're trying to minimize things that would get in the way from people hearing what, okay, so that's good. You need to you know, practice that. One of the things that I can do is to watch their sermon without listening fast forward. Fast forward it. And that will exaggerate the mannerism. So if they always go to the right-hand side, you'll be able to see that better. The other thing is, in our church, the camera is in the back. So if we were at Timberlake right now, the camera would be on that back wall, and it would be faced towards me, the preacher. So it's the back of all of your heads. And I have them watch the that in fast forward as well. And I tell them, pay attention to not yourself, but the people. Hmm. And so fast forward, what I want to see is are the backs of your heads not looking at me the entire sermon. I don't want to see your heads like this. Asleep, <laughs> but I don't want to see you looking at me the entire sermon. Here's what I want to see. Somebody's explaining to you. Here's your authority. Look at, you know, look at verse 5. Okay, verse 5 says this. And now I'm explaining what verse 5 says. So, at the preacher, the Bible, the Bible, at the preacher. Look at what Clay says. I'm not the authority. I need to be able to accurately, you need to be able to accurately and, and confidently know that that's what it says. You don't need to do it as well as somebody who's the official teacher in the church has been doing it 25 years with all of the little bells and whistles, but you need to be able to understand from the text what it says so that you can be able to communicate that to others. Yeah? I was thinking, too, about feeling your way through sermons. Uh, Beets and kale are superfoods that we need, but we don't feel like eating them. So we have to teach people how to extract truth and, and, and consume what is right from the pulpit because they don't really feel their way through that. Mm-hmm. And that's being intentional work of the one who's preparing the sermon. That's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I remember Chuck Swindoll telling a story about picking up an inner city kid for Thanksgiving and this young man didn't have a, didn't have a really good home life at all. He took him over to this when he was in Dallas at DTS and took him to DTS for his big Thanksgiving feed and turkey and cranberry sauce and stuffing and all the trimmings and the little boy didn't hardly eat anything. He's like, you know, eight years old. And Swindoll said he couldn't he couldn't figure out why. He thought he was maybe nervous being around people. And then he asked him on the way home if he could stop at McDonald's because he was really hungry. Hmm. Mm. And his palate had been trained, and 
because there's not food and the food's not good. Maybe because you won't pull yourself up to the table. It maybe because you know you've eaten a bunch of junk food before you got there. Um, maybe because I'm drinking milk and I can't eat the meat that you mm. serve. So you just have to be aware. You're part of the sermon, just like just, just like I am. And people want to be inspired over the the delivery rather than the truth. Hmm. And they need to learn and, tra- and train themselves to be inspired by the truth. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, when we talk about these things, always keep in mind, you know, you understand that there's there's uh, uh, extremes, and sometimes you use extremes to make a point. Um, and in general, there is a famine. Spirit of God uses the Word of God to in the child of God to produce the will of God for the glory of God. Yeah. Pastor, I had a sermon one time that was a, a good example of uh, getting pretty much everything you said wrong. Uh, and thankfully, it was. Tuck, I'm really sorry. Uh, <laughs> 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 you tell me which one it is, I'll take it out of my <laughs> No, but I was I was riding in the car with a friend, no one here at this church, but um, he this was some sermon he found online, and the guy preached, or he called preaching. It was um, the two texts that he used were some verse in Proverbs about pride. And then he went to Matthew 28, the Great Commission, and the point of his sermon was um, being loving to people when we witness to them and not beating them over the head, and his, his delivery was very compelling, and um, the mm. and the delivery was great. It, it 
stirred up a lot of feelings. It was, I mean, it would have been great if the content had been coherent, but it just wasn't great. Mm. He didn't get the, the mood of either passage right. He didn't get the meaning of either one right. Um, and I'm just very, very thankful that we have much better teaching here. And, and like you said, it's teaching us how to, how to read our Bibles. Mm. Amen. 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 I always remember, you know, God can do whatever he wants to do. He strikes straight licks with crooked sticks. I mean, I was saved. <laughs> People have been saved under sermons that I've taken out of context. This is not about what God can do, but that's not the practice that you repeat. Let me say one of the final things. If you listen to this and it's discouraging to you, like, wow, I can never do that. That, 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 that kind of rocks me. I'm kind of reading. And I don't I Just persevere. I felt the same way. It feels like you're in a fog, and the next thing you know, the fog lifts, and you're doing it, and you're doing it really well. Just don't give up. God's worthy of that, of that pursuit. And that's what the that's pleasing to the Lord to, to press into that and try to figure it out. And you're not going to know it all, and but that's the joy. You can, and and uh, God will help you. And you just keep working, and then it just becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. And the clearer you hear God's voice, the clearer you can obey it. And, and you might figure out there's some things that you thought God was saying that He wasn't saying. Hmm. And you might think figure out that there's some things that, that God's been saying that you haven't been hearing. Hmm. And then, you know, because his, his, his word has been given for, for joy and life and blessing. It's a blessing. Um, it's not a it's not a joke. Um, Passion Week, Thursday night. Uh, we'll walk through the, through the week. We'll do the um, Lord's Supper and we'll come back on Sunday. Invite somebody.